Welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. I'm traveling this week, so I don't have my good studio quality mic, so I may not sound as good as usual. That just means you can look forward to better sound next week. Oh, I'm glad you're with me. I'd be hit with horripilation if you gave me goosebumps because you missed this week's show. Quiet quitting. Let's start with what it is, because it's not quitting a job. From our coverage of 23NTC, Delaney Mullenix explains the increasing phenomenon, how we got here, and what to do to prevent it. She's executive director of Nonprofit Hub. And email accessibility. Our 23NTC coverage continues as Coralie Mead Rodriguez from Firefly Partners shares strategies that enable the 26% of Americans living with a disability to fully access your email messages. On Tony's Take Two, it isn't what it is. Redux. We're sponsored by DonorBox. With intuitive fundraising software from DonorBox, your donors give four times faster, helping you help others. DonorBox.org. Here is Quiet Quitting. Welcome back to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio coverage of 23NTC, the 2023 Nonprofit Technology Conference, where we are sponsored by Heller Consulting technology strategy and implementation for nonprofits. My guest now is Delaney Mullinex. She is executive director at Nonprofit Hub. Delaney, welcome to Nonprofit Radio. Thank you so much. It's exciting to be here. Pleasure to have you. I, I neglected to ask your pronouns. Did I? Is, is she the right pronoun for yes. you? Yes. Okay. I should have asked it. I forgot to ask in advance, but I don't want to perpetuate a mistake. All right. Your session topic is quiet quitting in the nonprofit sector. That's correct. All right, uh, let's first make sure that everybody knows that quiet quitting does not mean quitting. Please define quiet quitting so folks uh, my age and older know exactly what we're talking about. That's right, I'm impressed. How did you know that? Did you attend my session yesterday? No, but I know what quiet quitting, <laughs> okay. quiet, maybe, maybe it's more pervasive. Oh, no, no, do, no. Oh, do a lot of people think quiet quitting is actually quitting? Yes, 100%, yeah. Oh, well then it's not only people my age and older. Because I'm a young baby boomer at 61. No, majority right. of the people did not know what it was. Um, oh, and I really? think that the assumption oh. is that it is someone leaving a position, like taking a leave from their, their organization or their job. But, um, and well, I think in that a way, it's taking a leave. You could say and it's it like is. And the taking word, a mental leave. Yes. But you define it. I'm Correct. not trying to talk around it. You no, that's okay. Yeah. That's exactly you, right. You define it. And the words are misleading quiet quitting like you you can assume based on those words and how you know those words that it means someone's leaving a position right it sounds like you just skulk out right. and stop showing up for work so if someone has heard the term quiet quitting and they see their employee like taking time off of work or they know they're looking for other jobs or they think that they're going to a doctor's appointment but they're actually interviewing for another <laughs> position they say my employee is quiet quitting but that's actually not what it is so it's more of like the silent withdrawal they're like taking an emotional and like engagement step back from your job um and that could be for a lot of other reasons, like not doing more work than what you feel you're getting paid for. Um, it could just be that you're placing a higher value on your time. Um, it's really meeting your job requirements and doing no more, no less. Right. Bare minimum. Yes. You're not volunteer. You're not the one raising volunteering for the right. to organize the holiday party. Right. Flying under the and, radar. And you might like, not even show up at the holiday party. Right. Bare minimum. Exactly. Quiet quitting. Yes. Okay. All right. I'm, I, was, I thought only older folks would not know what that is, but <laughs> everybody who attended your session didn't know what they were. No, no, were, not very many. <laughs> no. How did the session go? Very good. Very good. Okay. Yeah. So, people had a lot of questions afterwards. Yeah. We'll um, talk, uh, I want to ask you some of, the, some of the questions you got. Yeah. yeah. All right. So we'll lead into the topic. Um, you believe that nonprofits have uh, incubated quiet quitting. Yes. For decades. I don't know that it's just nonprofits, but I think it has existed in the nonprofit sector um, naturally for a lot of reasons. Um, yeah. So, like, nonprofit boards have been quiet quitting, you know, since before it was cool, since before yeah, it was a corporate buzzword. Yeah. 
Um, doing the bare minimum. Doing the bare minimum. And I wouldn't even say they're quiet quitting. I like struggle to see, I struggle to see them even doing the bare minimum. Um, but right. yes. You need a new term. But yes. For doing less than minimum, but still showing up. Yes, like maybe. Me- less than the bare minimum? <laughs> yeah. Like below par, sub, <laughs> yeah. subpar performance. Yes. But still a warm body. Yes. Somewhere working. Yes, medium vol- volume some, quitting. Medium, okay, right. <laughs> Uh, all right, so boards. Uh, that's an inter- you want to flesh that out a little bit. Um, I mean, it might not be totally fair to compare a volunteer board member to like a paid staff member, but um, I mean, we see this all the time. Like board members are just taking like that that step back before their term is over. EDs are sending emails into the abyss. They're having board meetings without quorum. Like board members aren't showing up. I mean, this is all the definition of quiet quitting. And it's been okay. happening forever. Okay. Other examples of how nonprofits may have been, uh, you said incubating, may have yeah. been incubating this. Other examples? I think the other examples that I can think of are just like a, a premature leadership, um, and that that it's represented by a lot of different things. But um, for instance, there was just a very loud uh, NTC noise. Oh yeah. The nonprofit radio perseveres as long as the the ceiling is not coming down. <laughs> I don't know. All right, just listeners. I mean, we're on. You know, we're on the exhibit floor. At, at, at NTC, so there was just a loud noise in the background. Yeah. Okay. Well, apparently there's a red flag warning in Denver right now, which I didn't know what that was. And oh, apparently hi- it's like high risk for high winds that start fires. High winds and, to- oh, not tornadoes, oh, fires. Yeah, that start oh, right. fires because it's been hot. All right. Well, I assume we have smoke detectors throughout yes, the building. Yeah, I think I'm, we'll- I'm, okay. Yeah. We're trusting. All I'm right. sure they're prepared. This looks like a pretty fire, I don't know about fireproof, but it looks like a pretty safe building. <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll persevere. Um Leadership. You were talking about yes, uh, yeah. I think that leadership. there yeah. there happens to be a lot of premature leadership, and I think that's because for a lot of reasons. But one, people are typically not offering salaries to attract talent that is as skilled or as experienced as they need. Um, I've volunteered on a lot of committees and boards where they have an executive director step down, and instead of doing a search, they kind of promote someone from either on the board or from a committee to step into that leadership position. But it's not necessarily that they have experience leading teams. Um, and so there's a lack of um, things that happen. Like people aren't getting reviews. Like executive directors go years without ever receiving a performance review. Mm. And that's like, that's kind of, that's almost the norm and it shouldn't be. Um, but other things just like failing to know how to inspire your team. Um, and I think that's sad because we are the nonprofit sector. Um, a big part of my presentation was based on Devin Silvano's um, talk at Cause Camp, which is the conference that Nonprofit Hub puts on every year. And he was talking about finding someone's purpose point. And so questions that employers should be asking now compared to in the past was, um, how am I helping you to fulfill your personal purpose? And then employees are asking, how am I fulfilling my personal purpose by volunteering my time to your organization? And that's kind of missing, I think, in leadership. Um, And I think leaders still assume that people are looking for money or a flexible work environment. And yes, these things are needed, but I think if you really want to attract someone to your nonprofit, you need to be able to do those things. I was also, and that that, that kind of leads to something that I was wondering about, see if you have insight into this more than I do. You're you're talking about quiet quitting. accepting mediocre performance from your teams or from individuals as as um, as as okay you know yeah. like maybe mediocre performance gets rated high because, like at least you're doing your job yeah <laughs> and well worse. you know we have a lower salary range than you would get elsewhere I can't expect so you to do anything about I don't expect I'm, my expectations are lower for you which none of which is acceptable I'm not advocating this at all but you think that's out there too like ex- uh, accommodating mediocre performance wow like a com- like allowing mediocre performance because of to, the total compensation to, to perpetuate yeah yeah uh, like leadership's expectations are lower and, that's, and i've never thought about it that way but i i 100 could see that being true um yeah and i think sometimes i even like i can't say that i feel super proud about how much my staff are making i would love if they were making more and i think i've had that conscious thought like, how much can I really ask of them? Like, if I was in their position, like, I might not want to go above and beyond. Um, and I've I've been a quiet quitter before. I worked at an organization where it was like you were up for raises, you were up for your performance review. They were, like, kind of hyping you up that you were going to take on, like, a higher level of leadership. And then you get, like, pennies, right, for performance. Like, I get, like, a 25-cent 
raise, but I'm taking on managing another person. I'm taking on additional job responsibilities. My job title has changed. And that's just, that's when you start saying, if if my employer like isn't taking care of me and they're not like stepping up to like the plate, then I'm stepping back. What's the point? Yeah. So why, why should I bother? Yeah. I'll just do what it takes. Mm-hmm. All right. Interesting. All right. Yeah. So, I, so maybe something for you to think about that. Yeah. Accommodating, accepting mediocre performance yeah. as the norm. That's a great point. And I think we do that sometimes and, yeah. and it's not right. You know, yeah. either you, I'm, here I am preaching to an executive director, but you need to do what you can to, to get those salaries to where they, to where you think your, yes. your folks ought to be paid. Yes. And you know, that requires a, a revenue plan. Yes. Which may or may plan, not be yes. fundraising, but well, it a strategy requires a revenue it. plan. Yeah. Yeah. Put it in your not, budget, like plan for it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. One of the questions though that I think is interesting is, um, and I laugh because prior to my presentation, I asked several people this question. I said, is it okay to require your employees to go above and beyond? And prior to coming here, everyone said, yeah, yeah, that's that's totally fine. Like, yeah, I would ex- expect that. And then everyone in the room yesterday, though, said no. And then I said, you guys are right. Like, absolutely no. You can't require your staff to go above and beyond their job expectations. Um, but there are ways that you can maybe inspire them to do that. Incentivize. Right. And a lot of that, I think, is, is team building, too. Yeah. You know, uh, Maybe a lot of, I don't know, maybe some quiet quitting comes from uh, just a, a poor team cultures, mm-hmm. you know, not not a co- not cohesive teams. Yeah. So you you know if you don't if you don't feel a part of something, why would you contribute more to it than you need to? Yeah, and that's the whole thing. Like, is my does my job have a purpose here? Um, like, what am I really doing for this this company? Um, there's also a lot of research on why quiet quitting has happened and and yeah team culture is a big part of that but there's a lot of new research on matching personalities to the position um i guess 64 percent of americans are poorly matched to their job based on their personality two-thirds really and um like coincidentally like gallup did the poll on how many americans are quiet quitting it's 50 percent um, and so there's a lot of research right now based on um, like using personality quizzes in like your interview process or even like your job application. And even if you don't do that, what I like encourage the audience to do is at least know the personality that you know is going to succeed in this job. Like even if you're not figuring out the personality of the other person, at least have that conscious like I'm aware of what I'm looking for. Because mm-hmm. um, I think that's a big deal. Like we had, I had an experience one time where one of Nonprofit Hub's core values is uh unabashedly ambitious and that's like one of my favorite ones yeah that's good and we had a staff member quit and I was doing her exit interview and we were trying to figure out why she did because it was like kind of surprising to us and she was like Delaney I love working with you you're a great manager like I have have had so much fun I've learned so much underneath of you your guys's leadership um like Nonprofit Hub has a great mission I absolutely adore it um but I see you and Katie like the previous executive director just go 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 all day long like so fast paced like tackling all these new projects like doing all of these new things all of the time you 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 live rich lives out of work like you are volunteering all the time you're constantly busy like it's just she's like it's not me She's like, I'm not thriving in this environment. And that was a personality mismatch, I think. Huh. Well, why did... She, she felt that she needed to be a high achiever and, like you and have that high energy right. that you and, the pre, and your predecessor had had. Right. Yeah. Why... But why would she... I mean, if she's, if she's a contributing member of the team, mm-hmm. you were surprised. Or it's yeah. not like somebody you were looking yeah, to. Yeah, she was phenomenal. Look, you were not disappointed to have leave. Mm-hmm. Why did she feel that she needed to measure up to what you do? I don't know that it's that she felt she needed to measure up. I think that she was maybe doing that or working at a pace that was like burning her out. Um, and I think that sometimes if you are even in an environment like... There's a, an article from Nonprofit HR that um, describes five dysfunctional leaders in nonprofits, and one of them is like the workaholic. And I think what her perception of Katie and I was maybe that we were workaholics because we were like putting in overtime, but, but like Katie and I just loved like our job. Um, and yeah, like maybe at times it wasn't healthy. Like we probably did burn ourselves out sometimes. Like I'm not going to lie and say that I've never burn, burn out by working at this company. Um, but I think for her, when you're in that environment, everything feels like a crisis. Um, and you kind of like instill this sense of like panic if you're working at that pace and it's not natural for someone else. And to that point, like I've had it, like I'm actually an introvert, but I can turn into an extrovert very easily. And I've learned how to do that very well. 
but like I need my space. Like for instance, like t- this morning, I just like took my time and I like didn't come out and like do any networking prior to this. And like I might go back and take some intermittent breaks, but that's because I know that in order to be an extrovert, I need to like refresh and like renew. Well, thank you for doing that. Yeah. Well, and thank you also for being self-aware. Yes. That you needed to do that. Yes. To, and I to love, like bring your best yeah. to nonprofit radio. So yes. thank you. No, thank you for that. Thank you. And I love that the staff member was self-aware. Like she knew that it wasn't like working for her and eventually her performance probably would have dwindled, right? No. If she was continuing to put herself in this environment. But wouldn't you have rather she had talked to you instead of just left? Because you could have reassured her that her performance is very good. You know, you don't need to you don't need. You could have reassured her that she didn't need to measure up to what mm-hmm. what you do. Yeah. But you know the way she's working now, yeah. and maybe even just a little less, mm-hmm. would still have been a very good employee. Yeah. You would have rather, I think. I'm 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 putting words in your mouth. But oh, I would have. Would you have rather have had a a real heart to heart before yeah. she resigned? And to that point, we actually had told her several times that her her level of like calmness and the way like that she was so intensely introverted she actually added a ton of value into conversations oh, yeah. because she was always seeing a different angle you know, the balance the counterbalance than what we had been seeing yeah. um, or she would ask questions that we might have not been going slow enough to address or like you know preemptively try to avoid like problems in the future yeah um, and so she was great at that like we adored that aspect of her and it was really valuable to our team um, but to another point, I think some people are ready to challenge themselves and some people aren't. Um, and an example that I can think of is when Katie left, um, I had to take over hosting the Nonprofit Hub Radio podcast. And I did not want to. I did not ever want to present. I never wanted to host anything. Like I'm more of like a background person, like the integrator, not like the visionary. Um, and I can do it again. Like I can turn myself on. But that that level of energy and that that type of activity is more draining to me so I can do it in smaller quantities. Um, And you just have to be aware of that. And so I think when, my whole point is that when someone ever approached me to be on stage or present or talk to someone that needed an interview for like media or anything like that, I, my my whole body would immediately reject that, right? Like my, literally my physical body would instantly respond no. I'm not going to do it. I'll find someone else for you. I'll be the coordinator. Like, who are you trying to talk to? Like, I'm not the one you want to talk to, but like, I'll figure it out. Right. Even though I'm like highly capable of doing that. Um, but like naturally my body rejects it. And I think that some people can fight their body as natural, like rejection of something. And, but again, it's requiring more energy of them. And I think that's a big part of like burnout. Um, so if she's constantly pushing herself, it's not a natural part of how she operates. It's going to lead to her burning out. What ended up happening with the Nonprofit Hub podcast? It's going great. Oh, it is. Yeah. And are you doing it? Yes. All right. All right. So yes. we've talked around it like half a dozen times. Why don't you explain the work of Nonprofit Hub? I just full disclosure, I did a uh, a webinar for you. you. You said off mic three months before you started. Yep. I did a planned giving <laughs> webinar. Um, for for Nonprofit Hub. But describe the work of Nonprofit Hub. Yeah, of course. So Nonprofit Hub is a 501c3. We consider ourselves an educational collective. And a majority of that is is digital and online, um, as well as being 100% free for nonprofit professionals. Um, I actually had... The, the pleasure to kind of revamp like our mission, our vision, and our values um, when I started as executive director under six months ago. Um, but our, our vision is to create a thriving nonprofit sector founded on nonprofit excellence. And I don't know if you've heard the term business excellence before. That's like a much more common, I think, um, thing that businesses are striving for, especially like small businesses or like entrepreneurs. And there's like five pillars to business excellence. And so I kind of looked at that and I said, what are the five pillars of nonprofit excellence? Because they are a little bit different, or at least you have to say them a little bit differently. Um, And then we do that by um, creating a connected ecosystem of people, resources, and learning. So we... um, we provide educational experiences and content almost every day of the week. Um, Monday, we provide a downloadable guide. Tuesday, we do our newsletter. Wednesday, we always do a live webinar, which you are on with us. Um, Thursday, we do a blog article. And Friday, we publish a a podcast episode. Um, And so we're just constantly working with people in the sector. It's not always what we know. Like, we're not the thought leader here. Um, But more, again, that, like, connected ecosystem. And, like, I can't tell you, like, how many resources are available on Nonprofit Hub. If you have any type of nonprofit management if there's like a pain point that you're dealing with like you need to learn how to like even the simplest things right like in the whole point of nonprofit hub is that 
it's so tactical and easily digestible that you're supposed to be able to look at like an article and read the paragraph that you need and then move on with your day, right? Like, I don't want you to study. I don't want you to be in a course for like five hours, although we do have courses available for you. Like, I know that as an executive director, like you're searching something on Google every day. Um, and like, you just need to find that answer and like move on, right? Like I need a template, I need a downloadable checklist. Like I need to know what I'm not missing and then you need to move on. So that that's like our kind of like our passion. Okay, yeah. nonprofit, nonprofithub.org? Dot org, yes. All right, all right. And how many staff? We have five staff. Distributed? Or yes. over, the, over the country? Yes, yep. Yeah. So I'm from West Michigan. I have a team member in Ohio, Alabama, my Bama girl. Um, and then I have a gentleman who kind of splits his time between New Jersey, Chicago, and Atlanta. All right, five. Yeah. five. Yep. All right, yeah. thank oh, you. Oh, and then an yeah. intern, All right. Lauren, yes. Nonprofithub.org for, uh, for the hub, the hub of uh, resources. <laughs> yes. It's time for a break. Stop the drop with DonorBox, the online donation platform how many probable donors drop off before they finish making the donation on your website? You can stop the drop and break that cycle with DonorBox's ultimate donation form. Add it to your website in minutes, literally. When you stop the drop, probable donors become donors. Four times faster checkout, easy payment processing, no setup fees, no monthly fees, no contract, and you'll be joining over 40,000 U.S. nonprofits and over 50,000 throughout the world, and the whole earth, 50,000. DonorBox, helping you help others, DonorBox.org. Now back to Quiet Quitting with Delaney Mullenix. You coined something in your like learning objectives, uh, quiet firing. Mm. What is this? So if we were to define quiet firing in the same way that we define quiet quitting, it's not the intentional act of trying to push someone out of their job or the organization. Quiet firing is, again, kind of those consequences of premature leadership, I think, but also like a burnout leader or a leader who themselves are quiet quitting. Um, so this is like a very passive like management style. So not oh, providing my. their reviews, not engaging with your staff members, not um, providing affirmation. Oh, this is so toxic. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Are you seeing a lot of quiet firing? Are you see examples um, of, well, you see examples or is, so it, is it trending? I think what happens is that I think, I think I've seen more of like the intentional trying to push someone out than I have seen quiet firing. Okay. Um, but I think when you see the, when you see the behavior of quiet quitting at the board level, um, that executive director is probably leaning towards like a quiet quitting behavior. Um, if they're not having a board that's, if they have a board that's quiet firing them. Um, and then it just like trickles Jeez, down. It trickles down from, yeah. from the board quiet firing to the CEO quiet firing right. and to you, the employees quiet quitting. Yeah. And you feel a lot less oh guilt, God. right? Like doing that when you see your leaders doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. So what, 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 what should we be thinking about? What should we be conscious of to or what? Well, I think we've talked about what it looks like. Uh, like mm -hmm. Identify the symptoms of mm -hmm. quiet quitting. Mm -hmm. What does a, a CEO, executive director do in the face of this? Maybe it's just one person. Maybe mm -hmm. it's, hopefully it's not throughout your teams. You see a quiet quitter, you suspect quiet quitter. What does a CEO do? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things and a lot of my recommendations um, that or, I Or other supervisor, sorry. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think of all our listeners. Yeah. Or other supervisor of the person. Mm -hmm. Doesn't have to be the CEO. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I a lot of my recommendations, I think, try to prevent the quiet quitting from happening. Okay. Um, but there's also a lot of conversation around, um, and we can kind of tell that the quiet quitting phenomenon isn't necessarily all negative. Um, like there's a shift in like the power dynamic between like the employee employee and the and employer. Um, like employees are now like valuing their time. There's a healthier work-life balance. Um, people are actually intermittently quiet quitting to avoid burnout. And wouldn't the employer want you to do that? Um, like burnout is so toxic, um, especially when yeah. it's in leadership. Yeah. Um, and so it's not necessarily a good or bad thing. Like it's going to exist, I think forever. And it's been happening in generations well before the workforce right now. 
Um, and there's lots of like evidence on that as well. Like if you look at a, if you look at the U.S. employee engagement trend um, compared to the sh- the rapid shift in generations in the workforce, the engagement has been exactly the same. The same level of employees are engaged since 2000 as they are in 2022, and the same level of employees are actively disengaged in the 2000s as they are now in 2023. So that hasn't changed at all, regardless of how much millennials have now skyrocketed. And in 2022, they'll be, or in less than two years, it'll be 75% of the entire workforce. And the second biggest generation is going to be Gen Z. Um, But again, that, that engagement isn't actually changing. So like quiet quitting wasn't like a generational thing. Um, it's always been happening. Yeah, we're just, we've we've identified it. We put a label on it. Mm-hmm. All right, all right. So all right, so uh, something of a, a silver lining. I, it's, it's not. Yeah. It's not always. One hundred percent silver it's not lining. Always toxic. Yeah, this is like the silver lining is that like we're gonna right size jobs. Um, people are gonna be in the right seat. There's gonna be a higher level of happiness and engagement. Like at the end of the day, if we if we address it in the right way, um, and I think yeah, again, like the things that I recommend are. I feel like almost basic like HR practices, but again, like leaders aren't always equipped to have that skill set. Like they don't know best practices of HR or how to like lead and inspire a team. Like they're premature leaders. Like they need to learn these things. Um, and like, I mean, all the way from like the onboarding experience of your employee to like your job description and your expectations. Um, and again, like trying to match personality to the position. Like these are all things that you can do to try to make sure that the staff that you're putting into a position is going to be engaged and happy. All you can do is minimize the the likelihood. Mm -hmm. What about, what about going back to my, my original question? If, if you do think you see it, how do you engage the employee uh, with the understanding that it's not always negative? Mm -hmm. The person might be engaging in just some self care that that they feel that they need. Yeah. But as the person's supervisor, you're seeing less engagement, uh, maybe poorer performance yeah. for some, how do you as the supervisor engage with the employee? Yeah. I think when I see people kind of, um, like being asleep at the wheel, I guess, if you will, like you're kind of starting to see like more mistakes in their work. You're like, what is going on? Like, why does this keep happening? Um, I think it is really important to just have like a, a very open conversation. Um, and I guess it depends on like your comfort level doing that. But I typically, will will address it from like a very professional standpoint right like you're not like and you have to kind of sandwich it in a way that doesn't sound like too you don't want to like violate anyone's um, privacy you don't want to make them feel bad in any way that's not the point right the point is like to help them succeed but from a factual basis yes but from a factual basis i've seen your performance yes declining here's two examples of what i've seen in the past six weeks yes and I love how um someone once said to me one of my like first one of the first people who like I loved as as like a business professional he said if you're addressing a problem with someone you need to frame it as if you continue to do a b and c then like these are the consequences type of a thing so you're kind of saying like this is the facts this is what I'm seeing and Actually, I think he starts it as maybe I feel that something's going on because I see A, B, and C, and these are the consequences if A, B, and C continue to happen. And then that employee has to take ownership of saying, okay, I don't want these consequences to happen. And like, let me address like how you're feeling and like what's actually happening. And I think that actually works. Like I've certainly tried it before. Um, And you're taking like a very like unemotional approach to like the situation. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's still kind of getting to the underlying like root cause of that, that employee's like behavior and performance. Yeah, that's good. Um, Valuable. And almost always the employees say, you know, like this has been going on. Um, I've had employees come out during like performance improvement plans and say like, this is what I've been dealing with for a while. And like, I recognize the issues. Um, and like, this is like valuable to, to have this performance improvement plan. Cause this is something I can focus on. Like, these are my goals to focus on, um, versus like everything else in their minds. That's probably like taking their brain space. Yeah. And that's a great outcome from a, mm-hmm. from a, a meeting or a couple of meetings yeah. Yeah. around this. Yeah. All right. But All right. I think some questions too, that that I'm not sure I am ready to, to ask my employees, but, um, to the whole, like the purpose point thing, again, like the question is, how am I helping you fulfill your personal purpose? Um, literally is a question you could ask verbatim. All right. 
Let's turn to your uh, your session. You said you had some interesting questions. Yeah. Came out of the session. Like, yeah. Like what? What stays with you? Um, some people were curious. Um, I had a woman who seemed like pretty frustrated that it was neither a good or bad thing. <laughs> oh, I didn't know what to tell her. Um, it just is what it is, but you can like mitigate the negative consequences what of it. What side was she on? She thought it was good or bad? I don't know. Oh, you couldn't tell. She asked me this question like five minutes into my presentation. So. Oh yeah. I was oh really? Like, I will get to the pros and cons. Okay, but you would just defined it and said it's not <laughs> yeah. as good. She's like, I'm confused. And I was like, oh, I yeah. know, sometimes it seems a little weird. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, well, you reassured her that we'll, we're going to talk about it. All right. Yeah. What, what else? One uh, of the other really curious questions I had was, um, is trying to match personalities going to create an equity? Oh, uh, well, uh, she's right to be equity focused on not just hiring somebody who looks like you and spends their social time like you and you know that that's valuable mm-hmm. she's equity concerned mm-hmm. here she's equity equ- with an equity lens yeah it's valuable yeah okay but well, i think that's actually and i i really like that question because i've been reading a book called quiet and it's the um the power of introverts and it talks about kind of like the history of introverts and how they've been so influential to the workforce and like the values that they bring and like real like stories of these people um, and some of like the most influential people that we know today like we're introverts and I love this book but it also says that um, there was like a shift in America where like the the best virtue used to be like integrity and then it kind of like had this crazy shift to your highest virtue is like your charisma and like your ability to like be social and it kind of became like the highest Mm. rate of currency and so those people were the ones succeeding in the workforce um, because that became like the new best thing versus like your integrity, like your loyalty and like your, like everything else. Um, super interesting. So like, I love that question cause I've definitely read about that before. Um, so like, yeah, if you are, but then the, then the question is not every, like is every job best fit for an extrovert? Not necessarily. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah. It was, no, there are a lot of jobs where extroverts will be frustrated. Mm-hmm. All right. Anything else? Right, anything else on the topic? Quiet quitting that uh, we haven't talked about. I don't want you holding out on nonprofit radio listeners uh, I, from your session yesterday. Anything we, we you talked about yesterday that we didn't talk about today? Um, I guess like one thing that I think might be helpful is when you are doing. Um, and again, this, these are all things that you kind of learn the hard way. But um, I was always in positions where I was again not getting reviews or I felt my reviews were important to my manager. So my reviews either were never scheduled and I had to be like, when's my review? I think it's been a year. Am I going to get a review? Like when's my review? And you had to like remind that person, remind that person, remind that person to schedule a review. And they're always like, yeah, I'm going to do it. Yeah, I'm going to do it. And they never do it. Right. Um, I can't tell you how many people have this like similar experience. And then when you get to like the interview or like when the interview is, or when the review is scheduled, maybe they like postpone it. They have to keep rescheduling it because they're not prepared. And then you get into your review and they're like, all fives, amazing job. See ya. Gee, how, how could you have possibly thought that your review was not important to them? To yeah. Crazy. How, how could you come up with that yeah. conclusion? So, and it's, it, it bothers me because reviews are important to employees. Like I've been on both sides of the thing. And so now as a leader, I will, when any employee starts, I schedule every single one of their reviews, like literally for a lifetime. Even if that employee is no longer with me, I'm it's in my schedule. <laughs> um, and I can take that out of my schedule. You put it in your calendar, like repeat never. Yes. Annual, Annually, repeat never. Yes. Repeat, I mean, repeat all. Repeat. Indefinitely. Or, right, indefinitely. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and never. Yes. And never, so right. I do a 30-day review, a 90-day review, and an annual review. And like I have those immediately once that, when that employee onboards. And I think that's super important. And like I try my very, very hardest to never reschedule those meetings. Um, like You have to look ahead and you have to prepare for that meeting. Um, and, it's, and you know what? That, can I take a little digression from yeah. that? That is eminently doable. Yeah. If you put something in your calendar, you can preserve it. Mm-hmm. You just tell other people that you're not available that time. Exactly. And it's just as important as any other obligation a, that you have in your schedule. Uh, unless a, a crisis, uh, an immediate crisis, or, I, well, crisis, you know, anything personal could, uh, anything large personal could be a crisis. Just the point is, if you put something in your calendar, it can be protected. Yes. It's up to you to protect it. Yes. Just boundaries. Mm-hmm. And with very few exceptions. Yes. You say, no, I'm sorry. Yes. Let's find another time. Yes. So this, you know, the, the idea that I, I I couldn't keep the appointment. Well, yeah. you didn't want to keep it. Yeah. For whatever reason, you know, I may not know. But, yeah, I mean, it's easy to preserve things. Yep. Just set the boundaries and enforce them. Yep. A little, yeah. A little obviously, a uh, pet peeve of mine. No, yeah, I, of course. digress to. 
I love, someone told me one time that you can't put meeting blocks in your schedule. You have to put meeting locks in your schedule. A meeting locks. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, and right. I love that. So you're valuing your folks. Yes. By, yes. By holding. But when like, you, when you say someone. These meetings. Yes. When you clearly didn't put any time into a review, like you think your leader's not paying attention anyways. Right, and this makes right. it easy to fly under the radar. Like, I'm not going to put in more effort if like you, like whatever, like I'm yeah. doing great. Okay. Good. And you had and that was your total feedback. I think yeah. the next time I come to my review, you're gonna tell me I'm doing great too, but I've done been doing like half of what I did before. Like yeah. um, but we use something called a five by five by five template and it's like one of Gino Wickman's tools um, under the entrepreneurial operating or, system. Whose whose tools you got say um, you said it very Gino fast. Wickman. Gino? Gino Wickman. Wickman, okay. Yes, he All is right. the creator of the entrepreneurial operating system. Okay. A lot of people just say EOS. Um, but we use a couple of his strategies, not all of it. Some companies like completely like go into every part of EOS, but some things we have found to be beneficial and one of them is the review format. And so the first column is um, your core values and behaviors and actions that represent those core values. Um, the second column is a rating. So you write this employee on a scale of one to five. The third column is what's working. And the fourth column is what's not working. And you can definitely have things in both of those columns, like at the same time. Mm. Um, for, for, for a particular core value. Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. Um, and so there's there might be one core value, but there might be four actions or behaviors that exhibit that core value for that specific employee's position. Um, and then the fifth column is my favorite. It's the comments column. But there's a very important aspect of this column, and it's supposed to be what can you do, what can I do? Mm. And employee engagement and performance is a two-way street. And if you're managing this employee, there's always going to be something that you can do and something that they can do to fix what's not working. And that should always happen in that comment section on a review. Okay. All right. Anything you want to leave us with around quiet quitting? I don't think so. How about some inspiration? Just uh, maybe just, well, I'll say it's a reminder that it's not good or bad. It's neither. Um, but some inspiration around what what uh, what folks can look out for and um, ha- and how they can help their teams. Yeah, I think maybe something inspirational, and I really truly feel this is that um, I think no- nonprofit, the nonprofit sector, even though they everyone keeps saying that we're, we're losing like the most talent and like the most employees than anyone in like the Great Resignation. Mm. Um, that needs to be changed, but I think it, I think that we have the biggest advantage out of any sector to change that because we are the purpose sector. Like, we are not for profit, all for purpose. And so I think we have, like, a hand up here. And so I think we can do better. Delaney Mullinex, Executive Director of Nonprofit Hub. You'll find them at nonprofithub.org, uh, an outstanding resource for nonprofits. Delaney, thanks very much for sharing. Thank you Excellent. so much. You had a lot of valuable advice. Thank you. And thank you for being with Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio coverage of 23NTC, the 2023 Nonprofit Technology Conference, where we are sponsored by Heller Consulting, technology strategy and implementation for nonprofits. Thanks for being with us. It's time for Tony's Take Two. I need a redux on last week's It Isn't, It Is What It Is. I think I stressed the wrong thing when I made the point that uh, it is what it is absolves blame and rather we should be accepting blame or accepting responsibility, accountability, either accepting it for ourselves or assigning it. Okay, that was the point I made last week. That was my major point. And there's something that I just mentioned, which really is the bigger point. So that's why I need the redux. I just mentioned that if you assign ah, it is what it is to something, then you're accepting it and you're not looking at possibilities for changing the thing, the situation, the problem. You're just throwing up your hands and saying, it is what it is. It can't be changed. So really what I want to focus on is not not accepting that. Is there some way that the thing, the situation, the problem, the issue could be changed? And to know if it could be changed, we need to figure out who's responsible. So that's really that's really the the 
the flow of my thinking. Don't just throw your hands up with it is what it is and give up on a situation. If it's important enough, look for ways that you can change it. That is Tony's take two. We've got buku, but loads more time. Here is email accessibility. Hello and welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio coverage of 23NTC. It's the 2023 Nonprofit Technology Conference. And this is our first interview of the conference where we are sponsored by Heller Consulting, technology strategy and implementation for nonprofits. With me to kick off our coverage is Coralie Mead Rodriguez. She is Senior Production Specialist at Firefly Partners. Welcome, Coralie. Thank you. I really appreciate the ability to be here and speak with you today. It's my pleasure, and I'm very much uh, looking forward to the Firefly pizza dinner and uh, beer celebration tomorrow night, right? I am as well. It should be a really good time. Okay, cool. See you there again. All right. Your uh, session topic here at 23NTC is how to make your organization's email messages accessible. Why did you think we need this topic? What, what are we not doing quite right? That's a really good question. And it's something that I myself have been learning a lot about over the past year and have determined that there's all kinds of different things that we can do to make email accessible from the content that we are writing to the images that we use, the branding colors that we have, and the design elements pulling everything together. It's been a fascinating process to learn. And there are a lot of people in the U.S. who have disabilities, right? Very many, yes, uh, uh, in all uh, wide ranges of areas you wouldn't even expect. I think, uh, I think you cited in your description over 26% of yes. the U.S. population. Yeah. Exactly. And All it's right. not only physical limitations, but language barriers and temporary disabilities. All kinds of different things are covered. Okay, so let's, uh, let's jump in a bit. Uh, you have something called the WCAG Email Accessibility Guidelines. Yes. What's that? First, I have drug and jail on, uh, on nonprofit radio, so you have to define WCAG. I am very happy to. Okay. These are the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, and they go for all digital assets out there. So not just email, but web and PowerPoint presentations or anything else that is a digital asset. Okay. And so what can we learn from WCAG? These are international standards that are designed to create content that is accessible in all of these different areas. So what they do is they set the standards that we need to meet. And there's many different levels. Currently, there is the 2.1 level. And that is the one where there's both a double A and a triple A level. Most folks especially in the nonprofit world, are just learning about these, so they're all brand new. So what we need to do is figure out what they are first and then how to apply them to our everyday work. Okay, the, the guidelines, so Web Content Accessibility Guidelines? Yes. Right? WCAG, okay. Um, why, uh, just available online somewhere? I don't know, where, where do we find them, first of all? They're part of the W3C Consortium, which is, again, part of the international standards around just web accessibility and everything out there. Basically, these are the folks who defined how Microsoft should be writing their code and how everybody else should be writing the code, setting the standards that they needed to meet. Okay. So, but do we as content producers, I mean, we need to know the WCAG guidelines too, because you said it, it filters down to like PowerPoints. Yeah. So, do we need to be, I mean, do we need to go and read the guidelines or is it just... The, the guidelines are more higher level, like Microsoft level, than, than, than our work? It's a very good question. There are a lot of different criteria, and really what you need to be aware of are the criteria that apply to your specific work. So me with email accessibility, there are about four or five that I need to pay attention to. So okay. if somebody's doing PowerPoint presentations, there are other ones that they would need to meet. But right. these four are also a part of that. So, first of all, the guidelines are online and we can find them? They are, yes. Okay. Web content. Accessibility uh, guidelines. Thank you very much. Okay. Yeah. All right. 
So what specifically to uh, email? So we're talking about email accessibility. What, what do we need to learn from from the guidelines? Yeah, what you need to learn around the guidelines is that there are four different criteria. The first one is around um, having hyperlinks that are underlined in your messages. There is also one around color contrasts that you want to have a 4.5 to 1 ratio between the different colors that you use. And for example, if you think about the color of a background of one section of the message, and there may be a button on top of that, you want to make sure that the button color contrast ratio and that background color meet that 4.5 to 1 ratio. Okay. Okay, we're going to come back to that, the ratio. Um, okay, what are the other two? The other two, one of them is around the text that you use in a hyperlink, that it needs to be descriptive. So I see very often in my work with clients that people are hyperlinking and underlining read more or click more. Right, or here. Exactly. And that's not that's descriptive. No, that's no good. No. For somebody who is using a screen reader or another accessibility device, they're not going to know what they're being taken to. All they know is read more. And when a screen reader is reading an email message, it pulls all the links together in one spot. So it's not necessarily as you're reading through the context. Oh, that's the key. It's not Bingo. in context with the sentence that the link is a part of. Correct. So they'll see, read more, read more, read more, click here, read more. And that's not descriptive right. enough to know where they're being right. taken. Basically worthless. Yeah. Until you click every single thing to find... Okay. Okay, so... Uh, all right. Yeah, I, I understand. All right. So the, um, the hyperlinked text itself. And then what's the final one? The final one is actually escaping me at the moment. I can't think all of right. it. That's, okay. <laughs> uh, it'll come back to you. I'll bet you. Yeah. Let's go back to color contrast. How do you know what your ratio is? There are luckily a lot of different color contrast checkers out there on the web. My favorite one is color contrast CC. And that one is where you simply go in and you enter the hexadecimal values of your colors. Yes. And that's one way of reading what the colors are. And it will tell you in comparison, like say a dark purple font on a light lavender background, you've got those two hexadecimal values. You can compare them in the tool and it'll tell you exactly what that ratio is. So if it's a 3.24 to 1, you know that you need to make your dark purple darker or your lavender lighter in order to increase that contrast ratio. Okay, because you want to be where between 4... 4.5 to 1. 4.5 to 1. Okay, yeah. 4.5 to 1. Okay, okay. Uh, all right, so that was color contrast CC. Yes. So just colorcontrastcc.com? Yeah, if you look out there, just a simple search for color contrast, that will give you a lot of different options out there. So okay. that's just my personal favorite. And your designer should know your hexadecimal numbers. Exactly. For the different colors you're using. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, is there anything more to say about the hyperlinks underline part? Is it just that they should be underlined? Really, because we've switched away from making things so accessible over the last 10 or 20 years really we want to make sure that you're underlining those and that's super important because it's going to be consistent with other people's email messages out there that's what folks are expecting to see so if your color contrast number one are not strong enough having that hyperlink underneath it the text decoration is really going to call it out so that it's very clearly identified and able to be seen when somebody is scanning through a message quickly okay and un underlining not uh, uh, underlining more valuable than just bold facing a hyperlink yes specifically underlined specifically okay. underlined yes okay. um did the fourth one occur to you by any chance yet no right. it still all hasn't right. come to on. mind okay we're gonna move on no, no problem all right um ada the American Disabilities Act email compliance. That's another, this is another standard we need to be aware of? It is, and it's taken into consideration with the WCAG guidelines. So those web content accessibility guidelines pull in all of those ADA requirements as a part of it. Oh, okay. So if we're a WCAG, all right, now we're, now we're in like uh, insider WCAG, not WCAG like I was calling it. WCAG. Yes. WCAG. All right, well, uh, I'm trainable. Okay, I'll call it WCAG. <laughs> All right. So if you're, so in other words, if you're adhering to WCAG, then you're you're adhering to ADA. You are. You, you are necessarily. Yes. Okay. All right. So one set of guidelines covers us. 
It does. The WCAG guidelines really took all of those accessibility things into consideration around disabilities. Um, anything more you want to say about WCAG before we move to another topic? No, I, I think it's something that you really need to pay attention to. And I'd say the only other thing I'd love to add is that there are changes that are due out at the end of May 2023. So what we're setting as our standards right now may change. I don't expect them to be dramatic, but there are dramatic changes coming in the future. I just okay. don't think that they're quite going to be released at the end of May 2023. COVID gave us a little bit of a remission space where people are um, putting out things a little bit slower than they used to in the past. All right, so it's coming. This this will likely air uh, in or after May of, of, of this year. Yes. So, all right, so if, if we just keep keep on top of WCAG, we'll, we'll have the most current, whatever, I mean, either it'll either be pre-change or post-change, but, so if you're looking in May, you might want to look again in June, July to make sure, because there's changes coming. Yeah. That, that's the point? Yeah, the, the May 2023 ones are some of the bigger ones, but there's definitely another full version that's due out after that. Right now we're at 2.1, and I think it's supposed to be jumping up to 2.3. Okay, okay. Uh, in the background, you'll hear uh, 23NTC kicking off because uh, nonprofit radio is, uh, is more efficient than the uh, conference overall. So we started uh, about uh, 10 minutes. Cora, Corley and I started about 10 minutes before the conference officially kicked off. But in the background, you may have heard that. Uh, I don't know if you could recognize the voice, but that was Amy Sample Ward, the CEO, kicking off 23NTC uh, here on the exhibit floor. All right, so Corley, let's go to uh, e- email accessibility best practices for designers. There's more. There's yes. more than just WCAG. There is. Okay. That you really need to think about those color contrast ratios and the color contrast checkers from a designer standpoint. In addition to that, you want to make sure that you have plenty of space around your call to action buttons. Remember, over 50% of folks are reading email on their mobile devices and they need space to be able to click the buttons and be taken to that action without interfering with other text or other links that may be on the page as well. Right. Sometimes it feels like people don't don't recognize that, what is it, 80% or 80, 85% of people are 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 using the web and, and looking at email on their phone, right? Uh, they are. So some smaller device and, yeah, right. That's, it makes so much, you go, you push up, you have to enlarge the screen a lot of times to get to the button that you want. Exactly. And, and, and only that button. Yep. Okay. Font size is okay. also a really big important part as well, like you mentioned with the scrolling. Think about the footer of any of your messages where you've got your unsubscribe link or change your preferences. In the majority of messages that I see my clients sending out, they're using a small font and it is accessible, but sometimes I've had to myself scroll on my mobile device in order to click that unsubscribe. You want to make that easily accessible so people can get off your list and make sure that your email deliverability rates stay high. Yes, right, because if people are ignoring your emails, that hurts your deliverability likelihood. It does. They could be marking you with spam, and that's going to definitely affect your email deliverability. We don't, yeah, we don't have anybody this year on on email deliverability, but we have a past NTC. So you, you and I are talking about accessibility, but deliverability is a whole other topic. It is. Uh, and so, yeah, one of the things is you want people who are engaging with your emails, yes. not just ignoring them or letting them sit in spam. You want folks to be engaged so that they're actively participating in your organization and supporting you. They know what content you're putting out there. They're in full support of your mission. Or if not, they're unsubscribing and leaving and going on to something else that they're more interested in. But even if they even if they don't unsubscribe, the email providers are smart enough to know how people are treating your emails, right? They are. They can see that there's no activity, right. and that's going to affect your deliverability. Yeah, that's your deliver- exactly. All right. Yeah. Um, anything else? Best, best practices for designers? I mean, and you don't have to be a professional email designer to be paying attention to spacing and font size. No, exactly. I mean, you yeah. do not. What, else? what other best practices you got you for You also want to make sure that you're limiting your use of all caps when your messages, because what's really happening is the 
all caps text comes across as very square and it's not easily identifiable to somebody who is looking at the message quickly. So we all have a normal pattern of looking at words and recognizing them by their shape. When you're using all caps, you're taking that away and making all of the words very rectangular. So it's harder to process what you're reading. Interesting. So all caps is harder to process? It is. Yes, indeed. Well, we think it stands out. It does stand out, but it's still going to take folks one second longer to really process what they're reading. Okay. Okay. Others, other uh, best practices, please. Another one is not centering your text. Or if you're going to center your text, use it with a very short headline. All of the other text of the main part of the message should be left aligned. And this again goes to the readability of the message. That when you get to the end of the line, if everything is centered, it's going to take folks a little bit longer to identify where the start of the next line is as they read down the message. Okay. So there are, there are studies about how people read, how long it takes them to read email on, on a mobile device. Yeah. yeah. Right now, it takes about nine seconds for somebody to comprehend the content that they're reading in a message, or at least that's the amount of time that they're devoting on average to reading a message. Especially if someone has cognitive disabilities, it's going to take them a little bit longer to process, but their attention span is not going to be longer than those nine seconds. So if you want to get your message across, you want to make sure that everything is really easy for them to read, identify, and get the content out and understand what they're reading. Nine seconds. Um, that, that sounds like still just enough time for my mother to create guilt <laughs> right. for me. I don't, nine seconds doesn't sound like much, but... It's uh, eminently doable for her. Uh, okay, other uh, best practices before we move on? No, Anything that's else? really it for the design perspective. And again, okay. like you mentioned, you don't have to be a full designer to apply these to any message that you're building. Yeah, right. These are basic. I mean, just don't use all caps. Yeah. Or, or very, use them very judiciously and don't center only headlines, etc. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't see a reason for all caps. Is there is there is there justification for all caps anywhere? Uh, no, I think from the design perspective, it does make things stand out a little bit more. But if you think about processing time of somebody reading that, that could be the negative for why not to use it. Right, but it's just it's just taken as shouting too, right? I mean, the, I mean, I still perceive it that way. Is it? Am I too, two thousand two? Am I am I still? Am I like a dinosaur when I see all caps? I still think people are shouting. Yeah, I think that is a generational thing because my daughter actually does not see it the same way. She doesn't see. see it as shouting, and she's okay. just 18. She's 18. She does not. All right. Gen Z. Okay. Do you? What do you think? I think it's all all shouting, definitely. Yeah. All yeah. right. Thank you for representing. Uh, you don't have to be 61 like I am to, to think that it's all shouting. All right. Um, your, uh, another another uh, sort of takeaway that you, you promised is... Uh, Code HTML emails with better accessibility. Now, yes. Now, if we're talking about coding HTML, is this higher level design type uh, advice? You definitely have to have some understanding of what you're looking for in the messages. And again, this definitely ties back to what email platform you're using to send your messages. If they're using a drag-drop type of approach, you may not be able to get to the HTML, so this is something that you don't need to pay attention to. Like a, like a MailChimp. Like a instance. MailChimp or constant a Constant Contact. contact. Right. Yeah. You're dragging, dropping, you, you highlight, you work, you, 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 you enter what you want, and, and the provider puts it in the right, puts it in the right format, etc. You just click a button to do what you want. Exactly. They're adding all, right. all that code for you. All right. All right. So, that's, so this is higher level HTML. That the HTML part is for folks who are actually getting into the code of their emails. It is, All yes. Right. All right. Um, but even along with this, there are definitely some things that you can look for. Oh, okay, good. Such as adding alt text to your images. You want to make sure that there is an alternative description for any images. We all know that Outlook is notorious for turning off an image, so the first thing you're going to see is that alternative text. A screen reader is also going to see this, the alternative text. So that's how you get to explain exactly what the purpose of this image is. What is it containing? What's the message you're trying to get across? You know, a lot of this occurs to me is just, I don't know, it's kind of thoughtfulness. If you just be thoughtful, like include alt text, make your hyperlinks descriptive, you know, more than a word or two. I mean, some of this just seems like if you're, if you're conscious, you'll be more thoughtful about accessibility. 
And that's really what it is. One of the things I noticed that I was doing over the past five years was rushing through a message to get it out the door. Somebody would give me the content in one hour and I had to send by five o'clock. And I know that that happens in a lot of nonprofits. You've got that deadline you have to meet. But if we stop and think about all these accessibility practices, it's not that much more time that we're adding on in order to get these messages able to be read by everybody out there. Okay. Um, I'm interested in how you got into email message accessibility. That, that's a pretty seems like a pretty narrow niche. It is, but it definitely ties into everything else out there. I've been working in email for over 20 years, working in the MailChimps. I've worked in Luminate Online, Engaging Networks, Pardot, Salesforce, Marketing Cloud, you name it. There are very consistent things across all of those platforms and things that you have to do. You have to write the content, the message, you have to have who it's coming from, the subject line, etc. So building upon that and diving into different things with different clients, I've learned about the email deliverability. I've learned about now, with, within the last year, the accessibility. And there's always a new layer of something that you can learn tied into email that's going to help nonprofits get their message out there and connect with the right people. You've spent 20 years uh, working in email. I have. You're a dedicated email professional. I am, and it's a very unique place to be because it's not like the web. The standards are not the same for how the email clients have to read the code that they're getting in the messages. I say a little more about that. What do you mean? Well, think about Microsoft Outlook as one example, and then you also have Gmail and you have Yahoo. There's no consistency in how those email tools are built to read the messages and the code that they're getting. So one will very happily accept centered buttons, and another one will not. Like Outlook does not like rounded corners on buttons, and there's special (laughs) coding that you have to use in order to enforce those. Background images, behind messages, that's one that's really hard to do. And there's a whole bunch of little nitty-gritty details around the coding that you can force things to look one way or another, but you're never gonna get that perfect picture email to look the same on all of those different platforms. There's approximately 15,000 different ways any one message could look when it's sent out into the world. So how do you, uh, I I think what happens for a lot of us is we just, we're not uh, email, 20 year email professionals like you are. So we just say, oh, screw it. I'll just, I'll do something else. Uh, Forget the rounded edges, forget the background image, you know, I'll I'll just, I'll do something else. But uh, but as a 20-year email professional, so all right, 15,000 different platforms. We're talking about different renderings, right? A rendering of email. How do you? So, how do you satisfy a client who isn't going to just say, "Oh, screw it"? That's uh, a really good question. I, I want it this way for 99% of the of the people who get my email. Yeah. Now and what do you do? What I do is I look at their data lists and I see what email clients their supporters are using. And from there, I see what the top percentages are. Is it Outlook? Is it Gmail? Is it Yahoo? And I make sure that the emails look good in those top 20%. And then when we get down to the very bottom of that $15,000 list, we really can decide, you know, that, okay, maybe um, there's an Apple device that folks are really not using very much. Maybe that's only 1% of their audience. And that's the one that we make sure it looks good, but it's not going to match the others. Okay. That was was the hypothetical client who said, make it look right for 99%. And that Uh, is a real client. They do exist. They do exist. All right. We won't deal with the the one who says it's got to be 100%. Yeah. Um, All right. Very interesting. All right. Anything else you want to tell us about uh, email message accessibility? We, We have... We have time together if there's anything we didn't cover that you want to talk about. Yeah, one more point that I'd like to make is around the language that we're using in our messages. There is a style of writing called plain language, which uses simplified sentences and everyday language, which really breaks down the barriers about the content that we're sending out into the world. Most of the time, you would think that writings that everybody could understand would be a best practice naturally. Yes. But in the way that we write in the news media, through health information, and I do work with a lot of health-focused nonprofit organizations, the language gets overly complex, and it's not necessarily understood by those who are receiving the messages. 
So if we use a plain language style of writing, that is going to really help break down the words that are used and the intent of the message so that everybody can understand. All right, plain language, does that just mean try to write more like the way we speak? Yes. So it's less like what you learn in college as the professional, you know, this is the grammar style that yes, you need to yes. use. Yeah, all of so that. Like contractions could be okay. Exactly. You know, I can't instead of I cannot or, you know, all right. So a more friendly, a more, more, yeah, a more friendly sounding tone. Yes. Is preferred. It's, it's going to be understood by a wider um, audience base. Okay. So forget what you learned in, in, uh, in your college English course, but because that was writing for academic journals. Exactly. A lot of it, or, th- or essays and theses, but we're writing blog posts, emails, sidebars. You know, we don't, we don't have the luxury of 15,000 words for a, for a, for a research journal. Uh, you know, we're trying to get our point across in like 200 words. Exactly. With somebody who has a very short digital attention right. span. But still long enough for my mother to create guilt. Yes. <laughs> All right. All right, Coralie. We're going to leave it there. Are you okay? Anything else? That's all I've got today. I really good? appreciate this. Right. Thank you. When is your uh, when is you doing your when are you doing your session? My presentation is this afternoon. I think two forty five. All right. Good luck. I hope it goes very well. Thank you. All right. My pleasure. It's Coralie Mead Rodriguez, senior production specialist at Firefly Partners. Looking forward to the party tomorrow night. And uh, thank you for being with our twenty three NTC coverage, where we are sponsored by Heller Consulting, technology strategy and implementation for nonprofits. Next week, data maturity and engagement and stewardship. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you, find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by DonorBox. With intuitive fundraising software from DonorBox, your donors give four times faster. Helping you help others, DonorBox.org. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great.